0: Billy Collins was appointed Poet Laureate of the United States in 2002. He was appointed to a second term continuing through 2003. He is a distinguished professor of English at Lehman College, City University of New York, where he has taught for the past 30 years. He is also a writer-in-residence at Sarah Lawrence College and served as the literary lion of the New York Public Library. He is the author of The Trouble with Poetry, Sailing Alone Around the Room, and Nine Horses. His newest collection is Ballistics. Thank you for joining me, Billy. Ah, uh, You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Billy, one of the things that interests me about your work is you're very interested in the job of the poet, and so I, I guess what I'd first like to find out is what's it like to be the poet laureate? What's involved in that job? Um, well, it's it's good for your self-esteem for one thing. Um, uh,
1: there's uh, I got a you know you get a phone call. There's there's no application process, or you know you can't camp out in front of the Library of Congress and. Uh, try to be first in line or anything like that. And um, it comes really out of the blue. The The appointment, I don't know how much I'm saying that you know already, but the appointment is made by uh, one person who's, that is to say, the Librarian of Congress. And... Um, he um i imagine people um he asked for advice here and there he he's asked for my advice subsequently and never followed it, so I have a feeling uh, my gut feeling is that it's a rather autocratic you know single person non committee decision um it arrives in in the um in the form of a phone call uh you know you pick up the phone and you're the poet laureate um, so after that people ask me why you know what made you decide to accept. And I thought back to this telephone call and realized that it wasn't in the form of a question. He just said, you know, you're the next United States Poet Laureate. And that kind of led me to believe that he might have been calling a list of people, you know, the first four of whom refused. And then he decided he'd stop asking and just appoint this next guy, whoever he was. But you have a very short checklist of duties. And, um, they involve giving a reading and a lecture at the Library of Congress, and that's where your office is. You're, a, you're an employee of the Library of Congress. Um, it has nothing to do with the executive branch or any other branch. Um, and apart from that, you can, you can run a reading series at the library, but apart from that, um, the few duties, uh, you know, it's very honorific. But it does provide the opportunity to, if you are so moved, to begin some kind of national initiative um, to raise poetry consciousness. You know, Ted Kooser started um, uh, columns in newspapers that would um, print poetry, and I started a program called Poetry 184 to get um, poems into American high schools. Um, so anyway, just to shorten the answer, I mean, it, it's um, just a few duties that you're uh, made to do and then uh, great opportunities do you get paid you get paid uh i think it's $35,000 the interesting thing about the stipend is that first of all it's not taxpayer money it's from a private uh, endowment so none of your none of your poetry hating tax dollars are you know being wasted um that could be directed in you know more murderous directions um, it's thirty-five thousand dollars, but the interesting thing is that I believe the stipend was thirty-five thousand dollars back into the nineteen forties and fifties, at which point it was a, um, a hefty chunk of money, and which would amount to a, a very decent annual salary. And in those cases, those consultants, as they were called then, would often move to Washington, you know, rent a townhouse or something, and go to the office every day. Now, of course, thirty-five thousand dollars is not enough to rent a townhouse anywhere um, so or certainly not in in washington and um so it's much more of a national um I kind of commuted from New York back and forth um not every day, but you know I'd go down uh, once a month or so but it's it's become more of a national um position rather than a washington based uh,
0: position well when you were chosen poet laureate of the united states what did you think would <laughs>
1: Well, I wasn't sure. I mean, it sounded it sounds great. And uh I, I will admit that uh, during my uh, laureateship, which is a nice word to say occasionally. Um uh, you know, if if the day was going badly and I, you know, I had a flat tire and it was raining. I mean, uh, I, I confess occasionally I'd think to myself, well, you know, at least you're the United States Poet, Poet Laureate. I mean, how bad could how bad could it be really? Um but I was pretty baffled because I didn't really know what it involved exactly. It was something I never dreamed of, um, never wished for. And I think that uncertainty um, is pervasive. Howard Nemeroff, who was one of my predecessors, um, said that the uh, what the poet laureate does for his or her term is basically expl- answer the question, what does the poet laureate do? Um, it, you kind of, you, you can do it w- what you want and whatever it suits your, um, if you're outgoing, you can, you can run around the country, um, banging the drum for poetry, or you can remain in a kind of turtle-like, um, seclusion if that's your temperament.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about, uh, Poetry 184. What, what is it Exactly.
1: Uh, poetry 180, period, mm-hmm. not, 80, not 84. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was Poetry 180 because of the 180 days of the school year. Okay, It began as a website uh, attached, linked to the Library of Congress general website. I just thought that if I was going to do something nationally, I, I thought that high school is often where um, the poetry instinct that everybody has in childhood is kind of often beaten out of people. Um, once you get poetry in the classroom, you you essentially have a teacher intervening. You know, you have, a, you have the a teacher kind of standing between the student and the poem, and sometimes uh, it's uh, it's obstructive. So what I wanted to happen was to have a poem read every day in American high schools, over the public address system or at an assembly, and I encouraged teachers on the website. I gave instructions as to how the poems might be read and but I was um, pretty severe about uh, telling teachers that the poems were not to be discussed, not to be, you know, don't examine the students, don't ask them what they thought of the poem. Just let the poem um, get into the students' ears, and if it went out the other ear, well, fine. You know, in some cases I thought it might stick. And it was a way of of two things. Um, Bringing um, the students up to date on very contemporary poetry, because all the poems were very recent, and also just giving them the sense that poetry could be a part of everyday life and not just a subject restricted to the classroom.
0: You talked about how the instinct of poetry is beaten out of you in high school, which is a really great term. Uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? And did, how come that didn't happen to you? Um I don't know. I think a couple of things happen, and one
1: of them is uh, I'm not blaming teachers. I mean, high school teachers are are, are warriors. I, I I could easily teach high school if I could just do it one day a week. I don't see how they keep doing it over and over again. But I think what happens in adolescence, obviously, is uh, you know students just find themselves in the grip of this of self consciousness. This kind of fretting about you know how how you look and your hair and how what people think of you and um, it has a, a very uh, a destructive effect on on creative liberty on on uh, kind of the, um, the kind of the looseness or the liberty of self-expression that that you find in in children who are very verbally inventive and you know the the poetry written by I don't know like seven or eight or ten year olds. Um, you know, it's it's like beautiful surrealism. You know, um, very loose and, and unrestricted in its imagination. But so, and also, uh, the poetry you get in school tends to be um, <clears throat> poetry of uh, people long dead. Um, uh, and so, I wanted to uh, just put in the ears of uh, high school students these fresh, uh, modern voices that kind of sounded much more like speech than um, the works of T.S. Eliot
0: or Ezra Pound. Your work, you, you having worked at a job as the, I, I'd say that the, the highest-paying and best poetry job you can get. Um, you also have written throughout your career, I, I believe, about the job of the poet, and, and I'm thinking about Monday and the trouble with poetry, or, or and, and could you find that? home and, and that's on page seven, and read that to us, and then let's talk about it a little bit. <clears throat> okay. Um, um, which one was the first one you mentioned? A Monday. It's on page seven. Oh, Monday. Seven. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, well, I um, I guess I'm very self-conscious about being a poet. I mean, we poets have such a... Uh, um, you know, people react to the fact that you're a poet in such nervous and uh, unpredictable ways <laughs> um it, it, you know, someone said if you, uh, they they never would admit that they're a poet, you know, to someone in an airplane or, uh, you know, that you run into casually because people get very nervous about, um, they kind of can't wait to explain how they hate poetry and they don't understand it. But um, their explanations are, are, are very jumpy. There's some problem they're dealing with that they had in high school, maybe. So I'm, I don't know, I, I'm uh, to be a poet is is somewhat ridiculous <laughs> and i am kind of aware of that and we take ourselves uh, so seriously it's certainly the most um, egotistical type of um writing if not art so some of my poems um kind of poke fun of the whole enterprise as i think this one does uh the title is monday the birds are in their trees the toast is in the toaster and the poets are at their windows they are at their windows in every section of the tangerine of earth, the Chinese poets looking up at the moon, the American poets gazing out at the pink and blue ribbons of sunrise. The clerks are at their desks, the miners are down in their mines, and the poets are looking out their windows, maybe with a cigarette, a cup of tea, and maybe a flannel shirt or a bathrobe is involved. The proofreaders are playing the ping-pong game of proofreading, glancing, back and forth from page to page, the chefs are dicing celery and potatoes, and the poets are at their windows, because it is their job, for which they are paid nothing every Friday afternoon. Which window? It hardly seems to matter, though many have a favorite, for there is always something to see, a bird grasping a thin branch, the headlights of a taxi rounding a corner, those two boys in wool caps angling across the street. "'The fishermen bob in their boats, "'the linemen climb their round poles, "'the barbers wait by their mirrors and chairs, "'and the poets continue to stare "'at the cracked birdbath "'or a limb knocked down by the wind. "'By now it should go without saying "'that what the oven is to the baker "'and the berry-stained blouse to the dry cleaner, "'so the window is to the poet. "'Just think, before the invention of "'the window, The poets would have to put on a jacket and a winter hat to go outside or remain indoors with only a wall to stare at. And when I say a wall, I do not mean a wall with striped wallpaper and a sketch of a cow in a frame. I mean a cold wall of field stones, the wall of the medieval sonnet, the original woman's heart of stone, the stone caught in the throat, of
0: her poet lover. That was Monday, read by Billy Collins. Billy, that's such a delightful poem, and and it moves us through such a a, a wonderful balance of emotions and perceptions. I I love this line, maybe a flannel shirt or bathrobe is involved. You have have this casual uh, feeling in your poetry. Well that's I guess that's where the
1: kind of irony starts leaking in there that uh if something is involved it's it's not just something you're wearing you know it's a little more it's playing a bigger role in this whole thing but you know I I'm, I'm making fun of um I mean poets need this time to speculate I mean I actually uh, I, I, where I live I have um you know this guy comes twice a year to to clean the windows in the house and um, you know, at one point, I was thinking maybe I could take that as a business expense, you know, <laughs> because these windows are, you know, my livelihood, looking out them. But that whole sense of, you know, poets—we uh, get this from the Romantic English Romantics—that the poet's job is uh, involves looking at clouds and you know, kicking acorns and staring at water and you know, looking at frogs or whatever. This kind of dawdling. Um, Meandering, daydreaming—you know—but I think, frankly, out of in my experience, that's where poems come from. You have to kind of shut off. Well, certainly the language of you know politics and consumerism and the noise of public language—you really have to shut that off completely. And
0: um, poems come out of silence and staring. Do you? Uh, let's talk a little bit about your job as a as a poet. Um, Do you have a a particular time when you write, or do you just wait for them to come along and scribble them on a napkin?
1: Well, um, I I don't have any work habits whatsoever, uh, so I'm I'm not a great role model for the workers of tomorrow. I I love um, Max Bierbaum's um, line where he says, um, he says, you know, the ant sets an example for us all, but it is not a good one. There's a lot of waiting around. I mean, I um, you know I always try to carry a notebook and I'm kind of jotting things down and trying to pay attention to you know maybe finding a metaphor um, on the periphery. And um, but once a little notion comes, you know, once uh, I feel this little uh, commotion, internal commotion or verbal. Uh, excitement, um, then everything stops. I mean, then it's uh, game on. You know, the, the, then I'm involved in the throes of composition, and I'll just stick with the poem for whether it takes twenty minutes or five hours. I'll just stick with the thing until it's uh, until I find a way to end it. So it's like you know, wait a lot of waiting around, and, and then uh, moments of brilliance. No, moments of <laughs> at least compositional busyness. Do you write on a computer or do you write on longhand? No, no. I I write in pen or pencil and just, you know, notebook or a piece anything, piece of paper. I, I think once it gets on the computer, for me, it looks kind of frozen. You know, it looks kind of done. So I, I like to uh, scribble and cross out. And um, the, the, po- the, the poem in progress seems much more fluid. Uh, when it's on a piece of paper rather than on
0: a uh, a screen. Do you have a, maybe a, a drawer full of very sad orphans? Uh, no, they they're, um,
1: they were put in the wastebasket and carried off by the uh, local sanitation people.
0: Now, I don't save, are you, are you suggesting like saving? Do you like let things maybe gestate for a year or so and go back and go, oh, now it's brilliant. Oh no no I I don't lost anything just it just goes <laughs> right in the garbage no no I'm I'm all for doing
1: it in one sitting um the there's the, 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 so much bad advice that is uh, tendered to writers I think one of the worst for me would be you know put it in a drawer and wait for a week or wait for a month and then come back to it if if I come back to it it's it's gone you know it's like um, like we're going to stop making love and we'll pick it up next Wednesday. You know, what I mean, um, it's you yeah, know there's something going on in the moment that has to be continued and perpetuated, and uh, um, so either the poem is you know completed in one sitting or it's pretty much abandoned for
0: good. Um, when you write a poem, you, you've got it finished. Uh, you have this thing, and you you're you're happy with it um you you presumably you type it up on the computer and freeze it <laughs> dip it right. into dip it into uh plasticine uh what do you do next with it um
1: well then i put it i just put it in a folder i just put it aside i'll, I'll then i'll i'll try reading it uh you know when i give a a reading at a, a school or library or whatever i'll i'll try to read it out loud and see how if I learn something from that, I mean, the main thing you learn is whether, you know, people like it or not. Um, but you you can also, um, once you read it out loud in front of a lot of people that, um, and turn it into a bit of a performance, um, certain things are revealed about the poem, like, uh, you know, certain sour notes. You, you might just find a couple of lines are hard to read and um, you trip over them. And that's usually a sign that the cadence hasn't been adjusted properly. Um, so it's like test driving. You know, read it in front of a couple hundred people. It's like test driving a car. You can find out things about it. And uh, there are little revisions all the time. I mean, you're always thinking you could have put in a different adjective here and there. But it, most of that is fine-tuning. The the conceptual um, run of the poem, you know, beginning, middle, and uh, the... Uh, the development of the poem and the run of it from beginning to end is is a, is kind of a single experience you know and then their adjustments come later
0: do you no uh, you when you have a single poem do you submit single poems to magazines and get paid that way or what well, i'm just curious uh, again that as the job of a poet presumably there's some money involved somewhere in there right? somewhere it's hard to find but yeah. it's somewhere um usually not one poem i mean
1: it's, it's presumptuous uh, to send one poem because editors it's like saying you know either take this work of genius or or, or be damned, you know. Now, usually you send, you know, three or five poems to magazines. I have, a, at this point, a fairly short list of magazines I like to send to, you know, favorite magazines. And uh, so uh, I always like to have something out there. It makes the mail more interesting. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, I always
0: have a, a few things floating around out there. When you're putting together your collections... Uh, c- could you talk about putting together a collection of poems? They're, they seem very deliberately paced, and there's lots of parts to them. I, I mean, they're, uh, every each collection, in many ways, seems you know like a, a, a meta poem in itself. Well, that's interesting because it's not it's not really the way
1: it <laughs> it comes about, but. But I'll, uh, I like that effect, though. Basically, I, I'm writing one poem at a time. I don't have a symphonic vision of my next book, you know, that it's going to be about some theme or it's going to address certain issues. It's just like one poem at a time, like cuts on a record, you mm-hmm. know, just um, trying to write one good poem at a time. I would say if I look at the the A material I've got and, it, and I've, if I think I've got, you know, 60 or so good poems, then I'll... I'll uh, read them a little more critically and throw some out, and I'll ask my editor to throw some more out, and we'll get it down to a tighter volume. Um, but what I do then is, you know, to, uh, in organizing, the organizing the book is, is something that um, authors spend a lot of time thinking about, but it doesn't have much um, carryover for readers because almost no one reads a book of poems from front to back, as far as I know. I don't I know, but I think editors and reviewers might um so all the trouble that goes into um organizing the poems and this kind of you know trajectory of um of sense um doesn't really get across to many readers. um I just take all the poems I have, let's say I have fifty poems or to probably make up the book, and i I just go to the biggest room in the house. And I put all the poems um, out on the floor, you know, individually, um, you know, face up. It's not that mis- crazy and mysterious. But, uh, and then I just walk around in my stocking feet and I kind of, I'm not looking for like all the poems about nature or all the poems about animals or something. I'm just looking to see if two poems would kind of like to be with each other. So if I can find two, I'll put them together in a little a pairing. And then I'll keep walking around and I might find a third that wants to join them or I might find another two that want to be part of another group. And I could never articulate what's going on. It's it's very um intuitive. But eventually these piles start to uh, to accumulate and develop and um and, and that's basically how the book is organized. Um Boy,
0: I love I, that I, image of you walking on your stalking well. feet. That's so great.
1: <laughs> well, that's kind of how I've done every time. But I'd, I'd give a little, I'd throw in a, um, a little piece of advice for uh, poets who are, you know, sending manuscripts out to editors or contests. The the, the the best way to organize your book is just front load it. You know, take the, the 10 or 15 strongest poems and put them right up front. That's the way the editor's going to come into the book. Then later, um, you know, if your manuscript is accepted, you can always say to the editor, well, I've had some second thoughts about the organization. And usually they don't, they're do not they not fussy about that. So then you can, you know, impose this uh, ingenious ordering on the manuscript. But in, 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 uh, when you submit it, it's best to just put all the good
0: stuff up front. Well, you know, we've talked about the job of the poet. And, and, and uh, correspondingly, there's a job for the poem, too. I'm wondering what you think poetry is supposed to do these days as a form.
1: Uh, well, I mean, the first thing it has to do is give pleasure. Um, uh, you know, it, it, um, that's, that's the main reason I read. I mean, I read for linguistic or verbal or aesthetic or poetic, however you want to put it, some kind of pleasure. And that pleasure is usually conveyed by um, the formal properties of the poem you know, traditionally Rhyme and Meter, um, but now in addition to Rhyme and Meter, um, anything that keeps the poem from just kind of... uh, the parts of the poem from losing interest in the whole and drifting off into space. So um, any thematics... um, I I just think, you know, I don't... um, I don't think people go to poetry to read about the poet or find out about the poet. I think they go because they love poetry. And... um, I'm not particularly interested in, 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 in other poets. I'm interested in their poems. And um, in writing a poem, it's really because of, if you want that linkage with a, with a reader, it's rather important to put up a pretense. And the pretense that your poem conveys is that you are more interested in the poem than you are in yourself. And that's not quite true in almost all cases. Um, but um, if you express that in your poem, you know, this, this, you're taking the poem more serious than you are yourself, then you'll overlap with the reader's love of poetry, and
0: that, that's the basis of the connection. Uh, I'd like to look at one of your poems, I think, that talks about the job of poetry. It's in your new collection, Ballistics, on page 86. It's uh, Baby Listening, which I just absolutely adored. <laughs> it's very funny. Well, this is um, it's something I came across
1: in a, um, in a hotel. And, um, you know, I, I, again, you never know what's going to provoke a poem. And this was just the, these two words. I, I'd never um, seen these two words uh, together before. Baby Listening. According to the Guest Information Directory... Baby listening is a service offered by this Seaside Hotel. Baby listening, not a baby who happens to be listening, as I thought when I first checked in. Leave the receiver off the hook, the directory advises, and your infant can be monitored by the staff, though the staff, the entry continues, cannot be held responsible for the well-being of the baby in question. Fair enough, someone to listen to the baby. But the phrase did suggest a baby who is listening, lying there in the room next to mine, listening to my pen scratching against the page. Or a more advanced baby who has crawled down the hallway of the hotel and is pressing its tiny, curious ear against my door. Lucky for some of us, poetry is a place where both are true at once, where meaning only one thing at a time spells malfunction. Poetry wants to have the baby who is listening at my door as well as the baby who is being listened to quietly breathing by the nearby telephone. And it also wants the baby who is making sounds of distress into the curved receiver lying in the crib while the girl at reception has just stepped out to have a smoke with her boyfriend in the dark by the great sway and wash of the North Sea poetry wants that baby too even a little more
0: than it wants the others billy collins reading baby listening thank you billy that's such a, a beautiful poem i oh, t- thank you i i i i think that this really gets to a a theme that i see in a a a lot of your your poetry about you know that poetry really has a place in our lives and it's a place that, that's somewhere defined by the imagination and by our letting the imagination go. And that's one thing that uh, another kind of theme I've seen in your poetry is, is that you like to take us in an imaginative place. You'll, you'll, we'll be in a real grounded place. And, and then you'll tell us that you're going to take us into an imaginative place. And you, and you take us there. Off, off we go. Uh, well, t- a couple of things about that. I mean,
1: one is that... I guess baby listening um, is about ambiguity, um, because I th- originally as the poem, I-, I thought it was a baby listening to something, and then I realized it was someone listening to the baby. So uh, the poem is basically making a case for ambiguity. Uh, ambiguity is not a good thing in many real-life situations. You know, you kind of want to know what a politician means when uh, he or she is saying something, but um, poetry uh, provides a a warm and uh, welcoming home for ambiguity, and uh, it's 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 um, it says something good about the poem if it means more than one thing at once. That sometimes is frustrating when you begin to study poetry, but uh, after a while, that becomes uh, one of its richnesses. Um, and the other thing you mentioned, I think, is that I do try to move the poem from a kind of familiar place to something uh, a little less familiar or a little more imaginary. I mean, that poem, Baby Listening, you know, it just starts with me in the hotel room, misunderstanding that <laughs> what I'm reading, and then it goes off into a kind of fantasy of this, um, poor child in distress while the reception girl is out having a smoke with her boyfriend. And, uh, you know, that's just
0: something I made up and it's a place to, uh, just strand the reader. Um, you know, I, I realize you're you have a career as an educator and you you're a teacher. Could you talk about teaching poetry and writing poetry at the same time? You're you're at school all day and come home and write write a poem.
1: Well, they they um not all day, but they they go together. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, I I just think I'm I'm very fortunate and to have um, had an academic career that. Um, basically you know you it leaves you time to write that's that's really the main connection for me it's not so much that the act of um, you know performing in the classroom has much to do with the uh, <coughs> excuse me the composition of poetry it's you know if you're a teacher a college teacher at least you get um i like to think of it as getting two salaries you know you get a salary of money which is you know adequate um, but you get this enormous salary of time, um, and sometimes you have less time than others, but um, you know, compared to most laborers, um, you have a great deal of time to uh, to yourself and, and to devote to your writing. I guess the other connection is, um, in teaching literature, um, every semester I'm revisiting the voices of whoever, you know, Wordsworth and Emily Dickinson and Thomas Hardy and Marian Moore and so I'm continuing to keep in touch with these predecessor voices uh which continue to you know influence me and form almost an audience I think maybe one of my audiences is poetry itself I'm really I love having actual readers but I think when I'm writing I'm thinking of pleasing this thing
0: called poetry uh which taught me how to write you're, one thing that uh, I talked with uh, Clive Barker recently, and, and he told me that Ridley Scott told him back around when Ridley Scott was making uh, Blade Runner, that Ridley Scott said he thought that in the 21st century, novels would be relegated to the same uh, realm of experience as opera, <clears throat> in in the, that they'd be rarely consumed by a, a highly educated and specialized audience. And, and i'm wondering what you think of poetry's going to happening to poetry in the 21st century I, I think of you putting poems on the web like that that's what a fabulous idea um
1: yeah i, I don't know i don't i don't think people will get tired of the novel because it, it's it's story i mean uh um you know people are just we're hooked on story once social realism was injected into literature um you know people get, became quickly addicted um to you know novelists like dickens and that Addiction remains. I mean, it's basically you know the novel is basically based on on curiosity and suspense. Um, you know, Nelson Algren said, uh, giving advice to fiction writers, he said, "Make them laugh, make them cry, but most of all, make them wait." You know, and and the novel is always making us wait for for the ending. I I I don't read many novels like that anymore. I like novels with virtually no plot because I've kind of lost interest in the fortunes or misfortunes of characters. I like novels that have almost no plot and in, in which things get worse um, as as they go along. As far as poetry, I I don't know. I mean, it's so hard to predict. It would be, I mean, if you you, you could, probably 50 years ago, I mean, you couldn't predict the way poetry is sounding today. And I, I guess it's the vanity of every age to think. You know, this is it. We're just going to keep writing like this forever because we can't. We don't have the the prophecy to imagine uh, huge stylistic changes in poetry. But um, if uh, the future is
0: anything like the past, they will occur. I don't know what they're going to be, but you in your in your poetry, you do a lot of time traveling. Uh- I notice this. Not you've traveled to the future, you traveled to the past, uh, you you tool all through uh, history in, in lives, don't you?
1: Well, that's one of the imaginative freedoms that poetry enjoys, um, that fiction does not. I mean, fiction is is basically the slave of chronology, and you know there are like Faulkner who um, experiments with jumping back and forth and hopping around in time. But basically, you know, the novel's a linear thing. It sort of starts in the beginning and the clock starts running and you know, it goes until the clock runs out. Um, in poetry, uh, you have the freedom to jump around in time and space and to, not only that, but to slip from one dimension to another, from one level to another, inside the poem, outside the poem. What do you mean by dimension? Oh, I just mean... Um, kind of imaginative realms where um, the the poem can kind of leap from something real into the hypothetical, for example. <clears throat> it can leap into a supposition and then back to reality. Um, you can, in the poem, kind of go inside a metaphor. You know, this, I remember this old poem by Richard Broudigan who said, um, it's something like, you know, it's a love poem to this girl, and he's saying that, um, your eyes look like uh, windows in a faraway city. You know that's interesting in, in itself, in a way. But then he goes inside the metaphor and he says um, something like, "It's raining in that city." You know, it, it's it's Tuesday afternoon and it's raining, and a boy is skipping down the street. Well, you know, we've flipped, we've slipped rather inside this metaphor, and we're in a purely imaginative dimension. Then we're no longer in the realm of love.
0: Could you read? Uh Poem on page ninety of your new collection, uh, Ballistics. The poem is the idea of natural history at Key West, which I think has a, a, a nice time travel effect in it.
1: The idea of natural history at Key West. When I happened to notice myself walking naked past a wall-length mirror one spring morning in a house by the water where a friend was letting me stay, I looked like one of those silhouettes that illustrate the evolution of man but not exactly the most recent figure. I seem to represent a more primitive stage, maybe not the round-shouldered ape dragging, dragging his knuckles on the ground, but neither the fully upright hominoid ready to put on a suit and head for the office. Was it something in the slope of my brow or my slack belly? Was this the beginning of the great regression, as the anthropologist of tomorrow would call it? I was never the smartest monkey on the block, I thought to myself in the shower. But I was at least advanced enough to be standing under a cascade of steaming water, and I did have enough curiosity to wonder what the next outline in the sequence might look like, the man of the future stepping forward like the others rising to their hind legs behind him, only with a longer stride, a more ample cranium, and maybe a set of talons,
0: or a pair of useless cherubic wings. Billy Collins reading the idea of natural history at Key West. Thank you, Billy. You're very welcome. Uh, tell us a little bit about writing that poem. Well, uh, you know,
1: it, <laughs> the beginning is true. <laughs> um, you know, the the wall and the mirror and the house and the nakedness. And uh, I don't know. I, I Again, I like to start a poem with something kind of everybody knows. And I think pretty much anyone who's been to school or anything knows what those, everyone's seen those charts, right? They start with a, uh, you know, a, a salamander or a fish and then it, you know, it grows legs and then it, um, it's an ape. And then finally it stands upright. And they, you know, there you have uh erectus, and then you have, you know, fully formed Homo sapiens or whatever. And I just, I thought that would be um, something everybody kind of would recognize. And, uh, it might be ironic to um to say that i didn't look like the most uh you know fully developed example of the species and and then this as you said some time travel um happened in that i was uh, end up trying to imagine you know what the next figure is going to look like um if if the if you know we physically actually continue to evolve uh would we have a bigger head or Maybe we'd grow, we'd grow talons or wings. And I guess there's a, a bit of morality at the end there because the talons, I suppose, would be kind of satanic and the wings would be angelic. And it's, uh, I guess it ends by expressing curiosity through these images as to whether we're going to get better uh, as a species
0: or worse. One of the things I think that makes your poetry so appealing is your sense of humor. And one of the things you do, I think, really well with this is to—you defeat our expectations for poetry. And a good example of this is Litany. Um, that's on in Nine Horses on page 69. Okay. I'd like you to, to read Litany for us. Okay. Um,
1: well, it's a satire on a kind of love poetry— um, that was, um, at the center of which is the idea that the poet wanted to flatter the beloved. And the form of the flattery was usually in the form of metaphors and similes in which the beloved would be compared to all sorts of things. Uh, I mean, traditionally, you know, men, uh, males controlled, among other things, (laughs) controlled lyric poetry. And, um, the the general drift of these love poems written by men were, you know, the idea was to entrance and flatter women, and then when more and more women started to write poems, they seemed to write poems criticizing men <laughs> for good reason maybe, but um, at any rate, it's it's uh, I use the two lines of someone else's poem, uh, a poem of romantic flattery, and his uh, his first two lines of his poem are, uh, "You are the bread and the knife." the crystal goblet and the wine, and my poem is, as you said, called Litany. You are the bread and the knife, the crystal goblet and the wine. You are the dew on the morning grass and the burning wheel of the sun. You are the white apron of the baker and the marsh birds suddenly in flight. However, you are not the wind in the orchard, the plums on the counter, or the house of cards, and you are certainly not the pine-scented air there is no way you are the pine-scented air. It is possible that you are the fish under the bridge, maybe even the pigeon on the general's head, but you are not even close to being the field of cornflowers at dusk, and a quick look in the mirror will show that you are neither the boots in the corner nor the boat asleep in its boathouse. It might interest you to know, speaking of the plentiful imagery of the world, that I am the sound of rain on the roof. I also happen to be the shooting star, the evening paper blowing down an alley, and the basket of chestnuts on the kitchen table. I am also the moon and the trees and the blind woman's teacup. But don't worry, I am not the bread and the knife. You are still the bread and the knife. You will always be the bread and the knife, not to mention the crystal goblet and somehow the wine.
0: Billy Collins reading litany. Uh, Billy, could you talk about uh, your use of humor in in poetry? Um, well, I, I gave a
1: talk about humor once, and I called it the dog uh, the dog that runs away when you call its name. You know, when you, <laughs> <laughs> you know once uh, once you say humor, you know, n- uh, you, nothing is less funny than talking about it. But, um, well, I guess, you know, I, humor... Um, I have a historic notion of of what happened to humor and poetry. And humor was fine in poetry until the romantic poets. I mean, you know, just quickly, we have the comedies of Shakespeare. We have um, the metaphysical wit of the, you know, English poets. We have Augustine satire. And once the romantic poets came along, Coleridge and Wordsworth primarily... Um, they got rid of uh, two things, sex and humor, and they substituted for them landscape, um, which sounds like a rotten deal to me. And it really took humor about, i don't say, 150 years to recover from its exclusion from serious poetry. There was people like Philip Larkin and then later the New York poets like uh, Ashbery and Kenneth Koch and others who... Um, have really restored humor to its rightful place in literature, and um, I think now it's um, it has returned full-blown. Um, it just seems such like such a part of uh, of the human condition that it's um, odd that it was excluded from from poetry for so many years. I guess my use of humor, and uh, I, I I sound when I talk about things like this like I really know what I'm doing, but. It's much more instinctive, I think, but I I try to use humor as either, you know, as part of the poem. Either the poem starts out being funny and then gets serious, or it starts out serious and it becomes funny. Um, A poem that's humorous from beginning to end, like Ogden Nash, although I love Ogden Nash, um, is one thing. And a poem that's just about psychic misery from the first line to the end, which is, covers a lot of contemporary poetry. I don't know, those are kind of monochromatic poems for me. Um interesting for me is a poem that, you know, deploys humor at a certain point. You know, it it uses humor as a um insertion point or a point of engagement or its humor becomes um the place the poem wants to end up because it gets it gets tired of its own seriousness or for some reason or other, but um it's it's just it's a take on things
0: humor is epistemological it 's not stand up comedy it 's a way of looking at life um i'd like to, to to ask you to read another poem from your latest collection ballistics um adage this does employ a little bit of humor, but it also i think speaks to a couple of subjects that you are are very interested in and work very well with language and love
1: well yeah it's a poem that um um, you know, it's playing on um, a lot of cliches, and, and uh, but, it, you know, it's about the, the other ancient subject, which is love. Um, adage. When it's late at night and branches are banging against the windows, you might think that love is just a matter of leaping out of the frying pan of yourself into the fire of someone else. But it's a little more complicated than that. It's more like trading the two birds who might be hiding in that bush for the one you are not holding in your hand. A wise man once said that love was like forcing a horse to drink, but then everyone stopped thinking of him as wise. Let us be clear about something. Love is not as simple as getting up on the wrong side of the bed, wearing the emperor's clothes No, it's more like the way the pen feels after it has defeated the sword. It's a little like the penny saved or the nine drop stitches. You look at me through the halo of the last candle and tell me love is an ill wind that has no turning, a road that blows no good. But I am here to remind you, as our shadows tremble on the walls, that love is the early bird who is
0: better late than never. Billy Collins, reading adage from his latest collection, Ballistics. Billy, could you talk a little bit about the way you have a variety of, of poems that, that talk about the relationships of men and women? Uh, divorce <laughs> it's very, very funny. Um, what love does in, in Ballistics and, and Bermuda in Nine Horses. Could you talk about when you take up that subject?
1: Um well I mean some of them you know come out of a obviously a personal experience uh many of them though I'd say even the majority um are more you know they're love poems that poets write because they're part of the genre you know I mean it's sort of um one's duty as um as a, a poet to write love poetry and it's also a subject that that covers you know it tends to reveal the heart um It tends to be about vulnerability and and openness and pain um so that within love you know there's a an enormous spectrum of emotions, and I suppose that's why you know to write about love is to enter this rather complex heart a uh, human heart and to see um you know it's it's many rooms
0: uh, it's it's very complex territory and the, I think that maybe the counterpoint to to your interest in love is, of course, mortality. And you talk about this um, in uh, the statue in the park and uh, the trouble with poetry and Bermuda uh, from Nine Horses. And le- maybe you could just read Nine Ho- uh, Bermuda from Nine Horses. That's on page 84. Okay. Okay. Um.
1: Well, when you say mortality that you know the the duck comes down it's uh <laughs> that's the that's the magic word. Did I, did I get, um,
0: is that 900? I've got it. Okay. I've good. Got
1: it. Yeah. Um it's not 84. Well, it's I mean every every poem more or less has the shadow of mortality, you know, falling on the page, but um but let me I'll read um the poem's called Bermuda. When we walk down the bleached-out wooden stairs to the beach and lie on our backs, on the blue-and-white chaises near the edge of the water, on this dot and the atlas, this single button on the blazer of the sea, we come about as close as a man and woman can to doing nothing. All morning long we watch the clouds roll overhead or close our eyes and do the lazy back-and-forth of talk, our voices flattened by the drone of surf, our words tumbling oddly in the wind. It's Good Friday here, hundreds of miles from any mass of land, thousands from cavalry. Wild hibiscus sw- twists along the roadsides, the yellow-breasted bird sings its name, and all the stores are closed, because today is the day to make hot cross buns and fly kites from the beaches, to eat the sweet cross, to fix with a string Across in the sky. The white sand heats up as one of us points out the snout of a pig on the horizon, and higher up, a gaping al- alligator poised to eat a smaller cloud. See how that one is a giant head, like the devil wearing sunglasses, you say? But my eyes are shut against the sun and I only hear your words, softened and warped by the sea breeze, telling me how the head is becoming a bicycle, the high wheel kind on playing cards, while the sea rushes in, falls back, marbles pouring endlessly onto a marble floor. And the two of us so calm, it seems that this is not our only life, just one in a series, charms on a bracelet, as if every day, We were not running like the solitary runners on the beach toward a darkness without shape or waves, crosses, or clouds, as if one of us is not likely to get there first, leaving the other behind, cast away on an island with no pink houses or blue shutters, no plum-colored ones trimmed in cream, no offshore reef to burst the waves into foam, and no familiar voice being bent
0: in the wind. Billy Collins reading Bermuda from Nine Horses. Billy, that's such a, a really beautiful and a, a, a wonderful journey in a poem.
1: Well, it's, uh, you know, I learned that from Coleridge, um, how to uh, extend a speculation in a poem, um, you know, to to open up the poem a little bit um well, just to speculation, just to following a, a, a train of thought and, uh, or a set of associations, not knowing exactly where you're going to end up, but trusting the fact that you're going to end up somewhere. Um, but, you know, the theme is, is ancient. You know, it's uh, the theme of love and the theme of mortality are kind of braided together here. And, the, um, you know, the speculation at the end is simply, you know, which one of us will go first and leave the other one behind. It was, uh, someone said that when, you know, when two people love strongly and for a long time that, um, and one dies first, that uh, it's the one who is left behind who is, uh, you can say, is truly dead. Wow, that's
0: a, that's something uh, I've sure. never, never. Well,
1: had, that's it's a little heavy, I know.
0: Never had the misfortune to think that. <laughs> well, <Where> I could. <laughs> well, well, let's let's move on then. <laughs> let, let me ask you about something that I've seen in a few of your poems: the piano.
1: uh well, um, I I've taken piano lessons. I, I play badly, and I don't play for anybody but myself. But it's, I think it's always good to. Um, you know, st- be studying something you'll never be very good at. You know, um, and whether it's you know, chess or painting or or playing an instrument, I'll, I'll never be very good. But it's it's humbling. You know, just to be at the base of this um, this mountain of knowledge, of musical knowledge, and just to be you know chipping away at the bottom there. So, and as far as um, of the of the poetry goes, I mean, the piano or music, uh, they're just uh, available metaphors. You know, they're not really obsessions, I don't think, but, you know, like the weather or, you know, seashells or knives and forks, they just become part of what's lying around us that we can use to talk about these um, these endlessly important and
0: significant things about life. I've been speaking with Billy Collins, He was the poet laureate of the United States from 2001 through 2003. His newest collection is Ballistics. Thank you for joining me, Billy. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.